So which is more incredible, that God would speak to God or that God would allow mortal man to listen in? Welcome to episode 29 of What We Believe and Why with pastor, author, and teacher, Dr. George Byron Koch. We've been working through the enormously challenging concept of the Trinity as George unpacks this vital and distinguishing pillar of the Christian faith. More of the same lined up today. Let's get right into the discussion. Here's George. We're looking at the Trinity. And last time I quoted from Proverbs 8. I'm going to read that again, and we will begin to unpack it. Remarkable things here in Proverbs 8. Here's what it says. This is wisdom speaking, wisdom personified speaking in Proverbs 8 in the Old Testament. Here's what wisdom says. When he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters would not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him as a master craftsman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and my delight was with the sons of men. Now, therefore, listen to me, my children, for blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise, and do not disdain it. Blessed is the man who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at the posts of my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. Of course, some might assert that this personification of wisdom is mere poetic license, an indirect and elegant way to speak of wisdom and not any sort of proof of another person in the Godhead. But such an easy dismissal of the self-referential language here seems like hand-waving. It's facile. It simply dismisses what it cannot explain. Well, we might assert that whoever finds me finds life merely means that wisdom is good and helpful in living. Expressions like, I was beside him as a master craftsman, and I was daily his delight, do not make much sense as poetic license. For that would imply a God who relates to a mere concept, wisdom, as if it were a person. It would be more true to the words to accept the presence of this person, wisdom, even surrendering any claim to understand it or him or her. I don't know seems more genuine than dismissing the possibility of another person present at creation because it's incompatible with the traditional or platonic ideal of singleness. Besides, this is God's nature we are discussing, and we can't penetrate it, however excellent our propositions might seem to us. And then there is this difficult bit in Psalm 110 where God speaks to God. Here's what Psalm 110 says. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Hebrew reads, Yahweh declares to Adonai, 
sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Both Yahweh and Adonai, printed as Lord and Lord in the King James and many other English versions, those are titles for God. So God is speaking to God and telling him that he will make his enemies his footstool. One God, two persons, one promising something to the other. We find those precise words from Psalm 110 used by Jesus in Matthew 22. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ, the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How then does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, Adonai, Sit at my right hand, till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. Jesus raises this messianic psalm of David before the Pharisees, David is referred to the coming Messiah, the Redeemer, as Lord Adonai, who is spoken to by the Lord Yahweh with a promise of victory. The Pharisees believe the Messiah is to be a descendant, a son of David. How can a descendant of David also be his Lord? How can he also be David's Lord? The implication is that the Messiah pre-exists David, is God, and yet will be born from David's line of descendants. Does this prove that the Messiah is God? No, not in a strict logical deduction, but it is a legitimate inference from the psalm. You can bet this unsettled the Pharisees there with Jesus. But perhaps more importantly, the psalm does imply divine activity between two beings, both God, both divine, more than a thousand years before anyone suggested the concept of three persons in one God. Psalm 110 is also echoed in Ephesians 1. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he, the Father, exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. It's also referred to explicitly by Peter in Acts 2. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we're all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. 
Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Psalm 110 contains even more that is later found in the New Testament. Verse 4 says this, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And the author of Hebrews makes an extensive scriptural argument about the role of the Jewish priesthood and the coming of the new covenant, and in Hebrews 7 explicitly quotes Psalm 110. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. This underscores the depiction of Jesus as the fulfillment of David's messianic psalm, the very psalm in which Yahweh God spoke to Adonai God, two persons in conversation and both God. Thus, here in Hebrews, we have two plain implications that Jesus is the Messiah and is also one of the persons who is God. So we're still working on the Trinity, and the last piece of Scripture I want to share with you is Isaiah 48. When we read the book of the prophet Isaiah, there are certain chapters that Christians usually read more than others, 43, 53, 61, but typically not chapter 48. There is some very disconcerting language in Isaiah 48, and this is especially true if you are a strict monotheist, a person who doesn't believe that there are three persons in one God. If you are a Jew, for instance, or a Muslim, you might think the Trinitarian concept that Christians hold, it's just made up from whole cloth. There's no basis for it in the Old Testament. They're just talking that way because of the way they feel about Jesus and how important he is and it's really not there. But I want you to listen to Isaiah. And I'm going to quote just after the break from the 1917 translation of the Jewish Publication Society. This is a normative Jewish translation, not Christian, so that it's really clear that this isn't some Christian translator fudging what the Hebrew says so that it will say what he wants it to say in the English. I will read it from the Jewish Publication Society translation, and we'll do that right after this break. Well, thank you, George, and thank you as well for the somewhat instructive insight that perhaps sometimes translations have an agenda. Nonetheless, I, for one, am looking forward to hearing the Isaiah passage from the 1917 Jewish translation, and we'll do that right after this break. A reminder that What We Believe and Why is based on the book of the same name, which you can obtain by going to the website whatwebelieveandwhy.com. All kinds of teaching resources there, full editions of past programs, and of course, the book available there. And we're back to our discussion of the Trinity after this quick break. Stay with us. <music> 